And a very warm welcome to the co-convener and chief literary critic of The Australian, Geordie Williamson. Good morning, Geordie. Morning, Deb. It's been a wonderful uh, book to read. You picked The Tall Man by Chloe Hooper, which tells the story of Cameron Dumagee, his death and what happened afterwards on Palm Island. Before we start, Geordie, we'll start with an extract from the book. Seven cops were usually stationed on Palm Island, but in the days following Cameron Dumagee's death, there had been 22. A fever had been rising. At night, barrages of rocks hammered the roofs of the police station and barracks, and when the officers went out into the dark, they couldn't see the perpetrators. On the evening of Thursday 25 November, six days after the death, the island's young doctor, Clinton Lay, met with the Dumagee family and Erica Kyle to explain the findings of the first autopsy. That night was unnervingly quiet. It was pay week, although even in off-pay week there were always a few parties going on somewhere. Revellers blasted loud music, kids were out playing, people fought. But now the streets, lit by a full moon, were silent and deserted. Two constables were on patrol. Around 11 they parked their vehicle and sat on the veranda of an old fellow playing his piano accordion. People came out of their houses yelling. The constables bolted. In the next shift, police picked up a woman with a black eye and two busted front teeth whose husband had bashed her because she defended Chris Hurley. Otherwise, that night was the quietest anyone could remember. Just silence all night. In the morning, the state coroner gave Erica permission to inform the community of the pathologist's findings. In jerky video footage taken by an onlooker, men, women, children and dogs lined the edges of the mall, a paved area outside the store and council buildings, to hear how Cameron died. It is a bright, hot day. The amateur exposure of the camera floods the scene with sun and shade. Erica Kyle stands at a portable PA system holding a microphone. She wears a black shirt, skirt and, despite the heat, black pantyhose. Notes clasped in her hand, she is both dignified and at sea. The Doomagee sisters stand behind her, alongside Tracy Twaddle, who holds a handkerchief to her face. Elizabeth stares at the ground. And that was Cassie McCulloch reading an excerpt from The Tall Man by Chloe Hooper. Now, Geordie, I picked that excerpt, but I could have picked any number of other passages to illustrate the power of what happened in the surrounding days, minutes, hours, weeks, years of that man's death. It's a really well-crafted story. It's, it's, it's a fantastically put-together story because what you have is the story of a lot of lawyers over a lot of years mustering a lot of arguments and producing a lot of paperwork. And for Hooper to have been able to turn this, this dry tale on paper into something of flesh and blood is, is nothing short of extraordinary. And, and I think that very courageous on our behalf, on the reader's behalf, that she would take us to places that we wouldn't stop to go and get petrol, by and large. Um, that particular scene sent a shiver up my spine because we know, if we've read the book, what's going to happen next. There is going to be a riot. And I have graven in my frontal lobes the image of a plumber named Lex Watton, who is a big bloke. And he stands outside of the police barracks with two plumber's wrenches, one in each hand. And she she does actually literally associate him with the figure of uh, the Old Testament figure of Samson wielding the sort of the jawbone of the ass against the um, the station walls. 
Anyway, it, it, it's an extraordinary setup. We've had a tweet come in from Tori Edwards. She's just finished The Tall Man and she says she loves it. So if you've, even if you want to tweet me or text me, whatever it might be, do. And I think, Geordie, you know, you've completely nailed it. Like, it's like, why else would... I, I would never walk down these streets at midnight. Never. But in this book, I do. Oh, absolutely. There's um, one night, I'm not sure whether it, she's in Burktown, and she's lying in the pub listening to the blokes downstairs just, you know, uh, uh, at the end of 12 hours of solid drinking and the shouting. And she said, I don't want to be sort of dramatic about this, but part of me was really worried about getting out of the town alive. And you have one of those sort of wake in fright moments, but there's something indefatigable about the way that she follows this. And I think that that's probably a tribute also to the lawyer, um, Andrew, and I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Is it Bowie? Or... I, I'm saying I said Bow to myself all the way through. Well, but I don't know whether I'm right or wrong either. This 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 fellow is quite an extraordinary lawyer. He devotes um, so much money and so much time to the case uh, and uh, and she follows him wherever he goes. Louise, you read it? Yes, I did. What did you think? Um, I thought, uh, I agree with all the things that David is saying. I thought that uh, the book, Chloe Hooper managed to give a perspective that was far deeper and far broader than any perspective that we as white Australians have ever had access to before. It was, we could see things from the black perspective so much more clearly. I was I was really impressed. The other thing I felt was that she was not unsympathetic at all to the policeman involved, Sergeant Hurley. Well, she, I mean, we, we were able through her writing to see his, his situation, uh, his priorities, his personal aims and ambitions and the difficulties of his job. Uh, it was extremely good from that perspective as well. I think that the other thing that surprised me, and Geordie, I don't know whether you have a view, and maybe you do, Louise, um, is I just didn't realise how much violence was part of daily life, that that people just take to each other there. It's part of how the community runs. Well, you know, we, we've had, you know, hair-raisingly dramatised reports in the media of this sort of thing, which is very difficult for, for an outsider to understand, but put in the long-term perspective years and years and years of white dominance, of, of community destruction, of personal and family destruction. I mean, it's, it's an obvious outcome. So, Geordie, the techniques that she used, immersing herself... We, when I spoke to her a couple of days ago, I said to her, was this like an, uh, a non-fiction novel? And we talked about whether that was such a fashionable term and, you know. But it, because you so dwell in the emotional side of this story, um, I wonder. Well, I, I think what she does, which is really interesting, is she borrows a little bit of low-key lyricism from other forms. Now, notice how the book opens with a description of various um, Aboriginal um, uh, mythological creatures, the tall man that hides in the cracks in the rocks that comes out to do evil. Note, at the very end of the book, she's watching Hurley at a parade 
putting his hands in front of his face and pretending to be a monster for a little girl. And note the conflation of the of the ancient idea, the, the, the bogeyman idea, with the literal here and now today, um, the sociology of white and black Australia and their relations. And you'll see how she's managed to give it a bit of an underground throb. Catherine? Yes? Your mum and dad are, were married on... Um, yeah, and five of my, um, four of my brothers and one sister were um, born there. My auntie was born there. They were put out there in the nineteen, an early nineteen hundreds, you know, in the thirties. Um, Tell me a bit more about it. And um, there was um, our uncle Peter Pryor. He um, there was an incident with the manager um, who went crazy, and it's been documented by uncle. That and that's referred to in the book, isn't it? Yes. The story of Peter Pryor. Was that your uncle? That's my, yeah, my father's relation, yeah, through the Biri people, yeah. That was a terrible story. He was the one who was deputised to go and kill the, the, the white man who'd gone mad on the island, wasn't he? Yeah. And they put him in prison afterwards, having got him to do it. Yeah. So there's been a long history of um, disputes, but, I mean, the incarceration of Aboriginal people on under the Act, um, you know, it's been long, long running, and things happen within Queensland that... Um, the truth never gets told, you know, with um, with things that happen to Aboriginal people, you know. Tell me, um, do, do your family ever wish to go back to Palm Island or is it a place best left behind? Oh, no, the, I've got relatives there. I haven't been there. I'm the last of 11 children and I live in Sydney. But my nephews and that, they go up there and we're going up there this year. Um, but the the my brother who lives at me, he's seventy six, seventy seven because under the act he was given two um, birth certificates, and um, he hasn't gone back. But I I do art, and um, he comes and he gets very upset because he lives at me and he sees different things that I paint, and um, so he's letting out information as he's from a childhood from under the act within the Queensland government's ruling over Aboriginal people, and. Um, then you get decimation of people. It's part of the um, uh, lifting and separating and, you know, it's part of the genocide, you know. Catherine, thank you so much for calling in. I very much value your contribution today. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you very much. Bye. Paula. Hello, Deborah. You have not read the book? I haven't read the book, but just listening to the conversations going back and forth, um, it sounds like it might be something for children or high school kids perhaps uh, to, well, to get onto the curriculum, it sounds like there might be something there. People can can read it with some empathy and and just build bridges, perhaps. And thanks very much, Paula. And I think that it does. It's a, it's a perfectly suitable book for a mature reader. I think that's a great point you make because Hooper herself at one point says, "I went to school in Australia in the eighties, and we just weren't taught Aboriginal history. And I had the same experience growing up in rural New South Wales. Um, Australian history started with the explorers." And so I think this is a really important contribution to us sort of going back and having another think about where we come from. And I think to think about um, how Palm Island is as a place and hear Catherine talking about her family experience there um, and also to just reflect on Chloe Hooper's, the overwhelming emotions that Chloe Hooper felt when she was there. When I spoke with her a couple of days ago, I asked her about memories that she had of the place and here's what she spoke about. There are a lot of women uh, you know, who, who hold together uh, families in, on Palm Island and in other uh, Aboriginal communities and um, 
and Cameron's sisters and his partner, Tracy Twaddle, were always just astonishingly um, dignified and graceful. And, uh, I mean, the sad sort of fact is that, uh, you know, they, they perhaps didn't expect that, that very much was going to be done in terms of finding out what had happened to their, their uh, brother and, and partner. I guess I was sort of constantly humbled by... Um, by, I guess, their grace. And there's a moment in the book where I listen to uh, old wom women in, in Dumaji singing um, uh, Amazing Grace. And um, they were women who had all been taken from their families as, as Cameron Dumaji's mother had been and placed in, in, the, um, in the mission dormitories. And uh, hearing them sing that song, um, you know, can sort of, uh, well, sort of undid me. Now, of course, what she writes about that, Geordie, is that um, they're actually shocking singers, right? Yeah. Terrible. Couldn't hold a tune at all. But that wasn't the point. You know, they were singing what they'd been taught to sing at times. And it was um, the, I, you know, I can't imagine. That song always gets you, usually, yeah. in context. But um, for her, there was something, it was representing something hollow inside I think the women as well, that they'd filled with this hymn mm. um, and it was all they could use to express. Hooper at one point writes about the fact that when um, Queensland started to be settled or invaded, what have you, by um, white Australians, by settlers, that there are 150 languages. Um, there are now less than 20 Australia-wide that have any kind of health or vigour. And she's lamenting the loss, um, Hooper is, of, of all of these wonderful... Um, song cycles, which could tell us so much about the Aboriginal past that are just lost forever. And in a sense, when they're singing Amazing Grace, what you're hearing is um, something um, broken. Bo it's borrowed, borrowed finery, and that's what makes it so affecting. There's one fellow who she describes um, when he appears in court. He's, he's very thin, like an El Greco painting, and he has a bandaged hand, and she calls him um, beautiful and ruined. And I think that's what you mean by that ragged, amazing grace. Thank you very much, Geordie. So the book of the month um, this month has been Chloe Hooper's The Tall Man.